Welcome to Everyday Law, the show where we answer questions about important things that everyone should know about the legal system that impact them in their day-to-day life. At the start, I'd note that the opinions that are expressed in this program are not the opinions of Howard Community College and that we are not intending to give legal advice applicable to individual situations and that if you have legal issues, it's important to contact an attorney. We've had some feedback from an earlier show we did with Ron Schwartz, and so we've brought him back to answer a few questions and to delve into another topic. So, Ron, some of our audiences ask questions about what happens if you don't take the the drunk driving test. We had an episode all about how to deal with the police that included discussions of drunk driving and that sort of thing. What, what, What are the implications of not taking the test? Will they arrest you? Well, the answer is that they'll arrest you if they believe that you've been driving under the influence of alcohol or while impaired by alcohol. Okay. And they don't need a blood test to make that case. If you're staggering, if your speech is slurred, if you can't stand up, if you can't find your license and registration, if you take field sobriety tests and you don't do well on these field sobriety tests, if you can't hold your leg up uh, without losing your balance for 30 seconds or you can't walk heel to toe, uh, there's field sobriety tests where they look at the uh, nystagmus in your eye. They ask you to follow a pen and see if your eye jiggles. And uh, if your eye jerks uh, while following a pen, it's evidence of drinking. There's all kinds of evidence uh, they can use against you in a drunk driving case without getting your blood alcohol test. Now, it's very difficult to beat a drunk driving case if you've taken the test and you've blown over the limit. Uh, So uh, when I've won drunk driving test cases, it's typically in cases where there was not a test. On the other hand, there are pretty severe license restrictions if you refuse. If you take the test and it's your first offense and you take the test, then essentially uh, it's it's a 90-day suspension of your license but you can use it to go to work or school or to attend alcohol counseling okay. if you blew less than a one five so and one five is pretty high. one five is pretty high one five is almost twice the the legal limit so well oh seven is actually the so it's over twice the legal limit uh so a one five is a person that's pretty drunk okay. so if you blow a one less than a one five and you take the test then at least uh if you've taken that test, you may have given evidence against yourself at the criminal case, but when you go to the MVA hearing, uh, you can get what's called a restricted license where you can uh, continue to drive your car for work, or empl- for work or employment purposes or school purposes. And so for many people, that's an important uh, consideration because they need their car. Of course. Uh, let, let me just stop you for one second. There were some questions from our audience about what the penalties are for these under the influence and impaired and that sort of thing. Well, if you are guilty of the lesser offense. Which is? Driving while impaired. Okay, and the number on that was? That's 07. Okay, go ahead. Or no tests. Okay. Sometimes if there's no test, then uh, you wind up being found guilty of driving while impaired because they don't actually have a blood alcohol read. The maximum penalty for that is two months in jail and a $500 fine. Now, that never will happen with first offenders. Okay, that's what I was going to ask you. If I'm a first offender and I have a wonderful driving record and I volunteer to help people and I'm a saint, what kind of penalty will I typically get in Howard County, Maryland? You'll probably get something called probation before judgment. And what is that? Probation before judgment means that the points won't go on your record. And for driving while impaired, that's eight points. Okay. 
uh, for driving under the influence, it's 12 points. It's a license revocation because uh, 12 points is the revocation level in Maryland. Uh, for either of those offenses, if the blood alcohol, if there's not an accident, if no one's been hurt, if it's a what I would call a garden variety drunk driving case, okay, uh, and you've taken some alcohol treatment, you'll probably get something called probation before judgment. Not guaranteed, but it's uniformly... Uh, given out for first offenders. And what it does is it keeps the your record clean. You don't actually have a conviction for drunk driving. You don't get the points. You can be on a period of probation, make sure you attend alcohol classes. Typically, they'll make you go to a Mothers Against Drunk Driving victim impact uh, panel where you'll see, uh, you'll hear from people who have been impacted by drunk drivers. And uh, You'll have a period of probation, and as long as you clear that probation, you don't pick up any other DUI or other serious traffic offenses, then your record will be clean. Okay, let me stop Now, you it'll there. be a second offense if you pick up another drunk driving That's, that's what my question was going to be. You get this probation before judgment that you describe, and then you go out the next day, and you go to a party, and you get drunk, and you get pulled over. What happens then? Well, if, 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 you, if you give up your right to appeal, so if you pick up another offense while you're on probation, then you can be found violating your probation for the probation before judgment and then the judge can go and actually sentence you can sentence you to jail for violating your probation on the first on offense. the first offense and the second offense i see and uh and take away the probation before judgment so you wind up with two convictions now if you've cleared your probation and then you pick up another drunk driving offense they'll still treat the second offense the, the next offense as a second offense they'll see that probation before judgment okay let me stop you there what are the implications of getting a second offense? Well, second offenses are treated more seriously. Many are know, there are there worse penalties for it? Uh, there are enhanced penalties for second offenders. You know, I I think it's best not to view drunk driving offenses as what the maximum penalty is. Uh, I think judges are loath to give people lots of jail time for drunk driving offenses because it's something that many people. Uh, you know, it's an offense that's commonly committed by many people that are otherwise law-abiding citizens. Okay. Uh, but uh, certainly, I would say that if you are a second offender, you're looking at the possibility of a small jail sentence, maybe weekends, maybe 10 days, maybe, uh, you know, I, I think the, the stakes go up if it's a second time. Okay. We also had a question about uh, speed cameras, and I wondered if you had any knowledge about that. Does the camera ticket follow the car or the driver, or how does that work? Well, the the owner of the car will get the speed camera okay. citation. It will be directed, and the interesting thing I've noticed is my cars are owned by me and my wife when we get them. I'm the first name, and they always come to me. They, 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 they never list my wife, even if she's uh, driving the car and the owner of the car. Uh, so the, the ticket goes to the owner, and there's a, you can contest that ticket. You have the right to actually ask for a trial. And, What's the basis for contesting his oh, speed you, camera ticket? You think that, the, that they've misconstrued your speed, that it, it wasn't proper, there was some error in the camera, okay. a red Practical light ticket question, maybe. How do you prove that that's Very, that? very difficult. Now, is the burden on you to disprove the speed camera's findings or how do, how, I don't understand. Uh, well, that. the burden's always on the state, but once they have the ticket and the, the instrument goes off, then the burden shifts to you to show that the, that, that the uh, speed camera was mistaken. So I, I would say that as a practical matter, as a practical matter, the average citizen doesn't have uh, 
a way of contesting these, these well, I cases. Would, They're very I, complicated. I would presume that they have to do some sort of calibration of the speed cameras, They right? would, and you have the right to have the person come in who uh, oversees the camera. Who, you know, what, what happens is they, they view these videos and there's, uh, there's a person that oversees them that sends out the ticket that has to say, yes, we believe this is a violation. You can have him come into court. You can... Uh, ask him to produce the calibration records. There's things you can do, but as a practical matter, they're difficult to fight. I think if you don't like speed camera tickets, you need to talk to your legislator about it. So it's a political thing. I think it's a political thing. I think counties in the state, they make lots of money off these speed cameras. Uh, people think they slow people down. There's some studies to show they do slow people down, but uh, a lot of people don't like getting them. And it, I think that you know, if you don't like them, then talk to your lawmakers and see what you can do in Annapolis about uh, limiting their scope. Okay. I'd like to turn your attention to a couple other topics. And specifically, I wanted to know a little bit about, I understand that you have been involved in working with respect to Title IX claims and also with respect to protecting student rights in sexual assault cases. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Could you explain, generally speaking, what Title IX is and how it comes into play with student sexual assault claims? Well, Title IX is the Education Amendments of 1972. It's a federal act that guarantees uh, non-discrimination in education in any institution that obtains federal funds. Okay. Now, when we say non-discrimination, are we talking about sex. gender sex. gender discrimination? Yes. And discrimination that's based on sex. Okay. Well, historically, uh, many colleges and universities had, for example, athletic programs for men, but they didn't have them for women. Okay. So, uh, Title IX was first used to try to obtain equality of uh, educational rights for women in athletics. Uh, you know, women don't play football, but they play many other sports and they weren't funded. Uh, schools didn't have women's sports programs. Title IX uh, ensures equality of opportunity at colleges and universities that, that obtain federal funds. And I would say that almost all colleges and universities in the United States obtain federal funds. They they. If they use the student loan program, they obtain federal funds. So, They're, like here at HCC, they Title IX would be certainly applicable. obtain federal funds, and Title IX would be applicable. Okay. And in recent years, uh, there has been a movement to say that sexual misconduct on campus has not been actively prosecuted. That that it's something that's uh, happened on campuses. It's rampant. And there have been very little prosecutions. Okay, now let me stop you there. Are you talking about prosecution by the police, like here, Howard County Police Department or the Maryland State Police? Or are no, you talking we're, about we're, the university authorities? We're talking about the university. Uh, it well may be that sexual misconduct happens on campus that doesn't get reported to the police or that may not arise to a criminal offense that the police may not be interested in prosecuting. But that is not to say that the campus may not view an act, a particular act, as sexual misconduct, okay. which is broadly defined. It can be stalking, it can be harassing, it can be, uh, it, it can be rape, it can be any kind of non-consensual sexual activity, but there's been uh, this awareness that uh, a, a lot of statistics have been thrown around that one in four women, one in five women, are the victims of, of some kind of sexual assault. Uh, on campus, and so there's been a movement to try to do something about it. And so 
the Obama administration, uh, the Department of Education, has an agency called the Office for Civil Rights. And that agency, back in 2011, sent a letter to every college and university in the United States saying, uh, if you don't enforce non-discrimination on campus, uh, we may uh, jeopardize your federal funding. I'm a little confused by that. When you say non-discrimination on campus, are you saying if you don't enforce the rights of people when they're sexually assaulted? I'm confused by what you well, mean. Well, it's, it's an interesting question. The Justice, well, the, the Department of Education, at least under the Obama administration, has defined a failure to enforce uh, sexual misconduct as gender discrimination based on sex. I might have a problem with that. I'm not sure that that's true, but that's how the Obama administration viewed that. And as a result of them telling campuses that you need to do this, uh, many of your rights have been changed if you're a student and you're accused of sexual misconduct. If, if you were accused of stabbing your roommate, you would have more rights at a student disciplinary hearing than if you were accused of uh, making an untoward sexual advance towards, towards another student. You must be kidding. I'm not kidding. It's a completely different set of procedures, a completely different set of rights for students accused of sexual misconduct. And in fact, the way it works is you may not really have the right, uh, in many instances, depending on where you go to school, uh, to call witnesses to defend yourself. Now, I did recently look at the HCC Code of Sexual Misconduct, and under that code, you do have the right to call witnesses, which is not true at the University of Maryland College wait, wait, Park. Wait, wait, wait a minute. So aren't there fundamental constitutional provisions and provisions – well, Maryland has its own constitution and its own Declaration of Rights. Isn't that true? Absolutely. There's the Maryland Declaration of Rights. It predates the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights in the United States Constitution. Many of the rights in the Bill of Rights were modeled after rights guaranteed originally uh, by Maryland to its citizens. And among those rights are what we call due process of law, correct? Correct. And due process means just for general purposes? Well, due process means that the government can't arbitrarily act against you. Okay. They can't just take away your property or your liberty without subjecting you to a reasonable process to do that. The, 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 the governor or the president can't just arrest you. Okay. You have a right to a hearing. You have a right to defend yourself. You have a right to notice of what the charges are against you. These are fundamental rights in our democracy. They actually come down from the, from the Magna Carta. Uh, and the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which was passed after the Civil War, guarantees those rights to all uh, 50 states. Uh, not every state had a Bill of Rights like Maryland. Okay. And in, it wasn't actually until the 60s that a lot of these rights that exist in the Bill of Rights uh, were applied to the states by the U.S. Supreme Court. It's a doctrine called selective incorporation. But uh, the 14th Amendment to the United States Con Constitution guarantees equal protection of the law and due process of law to all citizens of the United States. Okay. So let me stop you there for a second. That's all well and good, but it sounds to me like... If you don't have rights, you can stab your roommate, but you can't come on to your roommate, and the well, rights are different. I'm, I'm, not, not, I'm saying, not advocating either. I'm just saying that seems like a, a strange dichotomy. It is a strange dichotomy, and in fact, and I'm not sure what the HCC code is, but in many colleges, 
if you were to stab your roommate and they were going to try to kick you out of school for that, they'd have to prove your uh, your guilt or your, your violation of school policy by clear and convincing evidence, but for a sexual misconduct claim, only by a preponderance of the evidence, a lower standard of proof. Uh, you don't have the right to necessarily cross-examine a witness in a sexual misconduct case, which you might in another case. I thought the Constitution guaranteed your right to confront witnesses against you. Well, certainly it does in a criminal case. It's not clear. These are civil proceedings, and it's not clear that the rights that you have in a criminal proceeding apply in a sexual misconduct case, even though if you were expelled from school for sexual misconduct, you may never be admitted to another college ever because that's a black mark, a scarlet letter on your transcript. Okay. So uh, th there are serious offenses with serious consequences and uh, not a whole lot of rights uh, accompanying sexual misconduct claims. These claims are being litigated now in the courts and uh, I think that in not uh, not too distant future, the United States Supreme Court will be asked to speak about what rights one has in a sexual misconduct disciplinary hearing. Okay. So I gather that the individual institutions come up with their own policies. Yes, but they are remarkably similar based on the guidance that the Obama administration gave to the schools under what's called a the Dear Colleague Letter. This letter they sent out to all colleges and universities in 2011 sort of warning them that they were under the microscope and there's certain things they had to do. For example, they told schools that they had to lower their standard of proof. Now, I'm not sure that they had any right to do that, that the law requires them to do that, but the Obama administration did it. And okay, so let me stop Schools you. have done that. So that's not the courts telling people they have to do it. It's not the legislatures. In this instance, it was the Obama administration, Department of Education, saying you have to change the standards of proof. That's absolutely correct. It was done by executive fiat. I am flabbergasted that that took place. Well, it did take place. and, and uh, What are the practical implications of that? Well, the practical implications of it are that it's very difficult to defend yourself if you're accused of sexual misconduct. The way most schools are handling these cases is they have an investigator that goes and takes uh, statements from witnesses from all parties. And a lot of times these investigators have an agenda that their, their belief is that they're trying to stamp out sexual misconduct. They're working for the school. They want their statistics to be good. They want to show the administration that they're working to stamp out sexual misconduct. So they gather the evidence and frequently they filter the evidence uh, to the person or the panel that will decide your guilt or innocence. And so it's not necessarily uh, what I would call a fair procedure. In a criminal case, the police can make their report, but you have the right to cross-examine those police and test what they said and put them on the stand and cross-examine them. In these sexual misconduct hearings, uh, mostly students don't have those kinds of rights. So you're saying the investigator does what they do in investigating, and you're not allowed to point out things they did wrong or things they ignored or things they did that were inconsistent? It's difficult. You might be able, depending on the school's code, you might be able to ask questions of the of the investigator, but frequently the investigator is going to interview the witnesses, and it's going to be the investigator that tells uh, the the tribunal, whoever's judging you, what these witnesses said. They may not have to come forward and testify. You may be able to be convicted by the investigator's 
uh, synopsis of their statements. Well, surely you get to go and respond and, and testify yourself and bring in your own witnesses that run contra to what the investigator said, Well, right? the Howard County Code says you do have the right to bring in your own witnesses. Good. However, the University of Maryland, that's not true. And so depending on where you go to school and depending on what the sexual misconduct code is at College Park is very different than HCC. I, I actually looked at HCC's code yesterday and found that in many ways it was uh, more enlightened more enlightened than the rights that a student has at the University of Maryland College Park. Uh, but, but they vary from college to college. So hypothetically, um, what does, you know, people have consensual sex uh, when they're in college and otherwise. And if you have consensual sex with somebody and for whatever reason later they suggest it wasn't so and go to the university, what do you do in response to that? It's very difficult. Okay. It's very difficult. I would suggest that I say this with only a small amount of uh, irony, get it in writing. Okay. I, 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 I hate to say that, but I had a case recently where, but no, but no, where people no. had consensual sex, but the and there's usually alcohol or drugs involved, and some and the person involved in the consensual sexual act didn't remember it later, so assumed that she had a blackout. So she appeared that she was consenting, but later she didn't remember it because she was drunk, and so she later claimed that it was non-consensual sex because she didn't remember doing it, and it was very difficult to fight those charges. So, uh, what'd you do? Uh, I had to threaten the University of Maryland. It, it, ultimately, I was vindicated. I had to hire a psychopharmacologist to talk about the difference between blackouts and incapacity. It's a very complicated area. So. Uh, you know, it cost it cost the student ten thousand dollars to vindicate himself. Oh my lord! So, uh, my suggestion is, if uh, but get it in writing. I, I hate to say good. that, but you say that that's ridiculous. Yes, it is. But it, and, and it doesn't comport with reality. But in this climate, I uh, you know I just put two boys through the University of Maryland, and I'm very happy that they made it through. Uh, without having a claim made against them. Oh my lord, it's it's very frightening and it's a different environment. So, if uh, you believe that you having consensual sex, you know it would be better if the person wasn't drunk or drinking or wasn't on drugs. You don't want to be in a position where somebody will come back later and say I didn't consent. I mean, how are you supposed to know that somebody else is unable to consent? Well, that's especially also, if you've been drinking or doing well, drugs very, or whatever. Well, and if you've been drinking and doing drugs, it's hard to know. Okay. Uh, it's hard to know. Uh, the 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 judgment of whether the person uh, was had capacity to consent is going to be judged by what a reasonable person should have known. Okay. So if there's witnesses to say the person couldn't stand up, and you wound up having sex with that person. You might have an issue. Okay. Uh, what if you can't stand up at the same time? Well, then you're probably not in a position to judge. I would say if you're so drunk that uh, you can't judge, it's probably better to put off sex for another day. Okay. So practical advice, if you're highly intoxicated and somebody that you are contemplating having sex with is as well, you're better off not having sex because people could be unhappy with each other the next day and with the conduct. You may, if you are accused 
and found guilty of a policy violation involving sexual misconduct, you may never be able to graduate college. You may never be able to be admitted to another college or university the rest of your life. You may wind up with your high school degree and, and uh, y your life will be complicated in ways that you can't imagine. So you're saying if you're somebody who has put in you know, almost four years of college and spent, you know, I don't know what Maryland costs now, but with all of it, probably thirty, forty $40,000. You've spent $150,000 on your education and you get to your last semester and someone accuses you of this sexual misconduct that you may lose all of that. You, you may lose all of it. It's a case I have right now in the federal courts and we'll find out uh, what rights a person has. But yes, uh, person I'm representing has not been able to be admitted anywhere since he was expelled for sexual misconduct. Now, the rules that govern all this, again, we're talking about practical stuff. Um, it sounds to me, if you were sending a son off to college these days, you or a daughter, you would recommend that they read the sexual misconduct rules that prevail at, at the University of Maryland in particular before they go. Absolutely. And I would also recommend that they re read some of the news accounts of some of these cases, okay, that that that, that to see uh, how unfair they 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 can be. Okay, I, so you read the rules and then you're not going to violate them. You understand them. Are you good to go? Or are there times that the rules change or or you know mutate? Rules change all the time. Okay. Rules are different now than they were two years ago. Uh, the rules are changing constantly. It's a work in progress, these sexual misconduct rules, and uh, you need to keep up with them. They change on your campus. They change from year to year. Uh, it seems to be the rules started out with less rights, and gradually they've been adding some more as they've uh, been the victim of lawsuits and okay. things that are challenging them. Okay. So I don't not... think it's a last word on these rules. Okay. So you talked about the federal court. Um, is that the exclusive area that the federal court, you got to go to there if you have one of these sexual misconduct things go bad? You or? can go to state court, too. Okay. We have rights under the Maryland uh, Declaration of Rights, due okay. process rights. And if uh, you have a choice, you can go to a state court to vindicate your rights under the Maryland Constitution. The Maryland courts have said sometimes our rights are greater under the Maryland Constitution than they are under the Federal Bill of Rights. Okay. So you can go to either place, and it's something, obviously, you should consult a lawyer about okay. that knows something about these. Cases. So if your rights are greater under the Maryland Constitution, why wouldn't you use the Maryland Constitution and just go to the state court? Well, sometimes local courts are loath to uh, come down on a very big institution in their state. Uh, I recently had a choice in a case involving the University of Maryland, uh, it's not a surprise that in Prince George's County, the, United, the University of Maryland is, if not the largest employer, I would imagine the federal government is, but certainly either the, either the first or second largest employer in the county. Sure. A huge institution that brings, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars into the county. Uh, it's going to be difficult to find a local county judge to take on the University of Maryland. Sometimes you might feel you'd get a better shake from a federal judge with a lifetime appointment. Okay. Fair enough. Well, I want to thank you, Ron, for coming in and talking to us today about the questions that emanated from your last interview and also from this interesting and it sounds highly changeable and volatile topic of the rights of people charged with sexual misconduct on campuses. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Bob. 
And until next week, this is Bob Clark from Everyday Law. If you have any questions, you can send them to bobseverydaylaw at gmail.com, and we will try and address them, and we will try and locate experts in the field to answer your questions. Thank you so much, and have a good week. 